So good morning, guys. Good morning. Well, Ken said we're wrapping up our annual membership series this week and next week. And so this week I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to give you a brief just state of the church update. And I'm then going to paint a vision about what we feel like our church is called to be and do. And then next week we'll talk a little bit more about the vision, but we'll also talk about praxis, meaning like our practices and our strategies for helping us be what we're called to be. And so this year, where we've been, um, at this time last year when we did our membership series, it's, it's like so odd to me to think this now, but we were just a few months old at that point. And we were still healing and sort of settling into routines and trying to discern exactly what it was that God was asking us to do as a congregation. And from the very get-go, Ken and I both agreed that we didn't want to grow the church too much in the first year or two, and we did that for a couple of reasons. The first reason was that we wanted to get some systems in place. We needed to make sure that we had consistent Sunday school teachers and helpers. We wanted to make sure we had greeters and ushers on Sunday. We didn't even really have a youth group at this time last year. So we didn't want to stress the system beyond what it was able to hold. And secondly, we were pretty traumatized. And I know much of our staff was traumatized, and many of you who were part of the church split that had happened um, a few months before that were traumatized. And so we wanted to be able to focus our pastoral energy on caring for people and on tending to different events and groups so that we could start to build some new relationships. And I think that's starting to happen. It takes time. I think it especially takes time for people who had really deep relationships um, with people who maybe didn't come to this church. And a lot of those relationships that are being rebuilt, I think, are happening in small groups. And we have a surprising number of those um, that we've been trying to figure out how to get more. Like, so in terms of putting systems in place, we had some Lenten small groups um, that we did like bread and soup and met for just Lent. And then we had a couple of small groups that came out of that. And we're looking to do a few more things like that to keep it going. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that next, um, next week, but we feel like we're starting to come upon a system that can help newer people connect in a little bit better. We also got our youth group in order. So with the help of Ashley Majors, who graciously took that on for the first year, she's got a day job, she did not have to do that. She got our middle schoolers meeting. And then we recently hired Caroline, we shifted some of her hours over so that she's 10 hours um, focusing on our youth as the youth director. And so we're expecting that to continue to remain solid and eventually we'll have a high school youth program. Um, and we got the OWL program, which is the human sexuality program, going for our middle and high schoolers in conjunction with the UCC. I know Diane, um, she did some amazing things also with uh, the children's ministry this year. If you guys don't know who our lead teachers are down in the Sunday school, oh my gosh, I think we've got like the best Sunday school teachers you could hope for. And I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in the church and I still remember my, my Sunday school teacher from when I was in the three and four year old preschool room. Like, it's so important, um, just the enthusiasm and the love that they receive from those teachers who are down there. And so Diane has been able to get people who are there and committed and love doing it. And if you'll see them, they come in with like bags every week with all sorts of things for crafts um, and gotten a system in place so that we've got regular helpers who are doing that. We can always use a couple more people rotating in. But for the most part, I would say Sunday school is working like clockwork. We had the sound team, Garrett um, Stratton, got a bunch of people trained on the, the sound team and 
Robin got somebody else trained on the video, and Cassie back here has got two different worship bands that play. And so all of that to say, we've been working on solidifying the systems, which I think are coming together so that we can now start to take the next step. Well, last year, um, in terms of outreach, we were also still a little bit unsure about what that was going to look like for us as a church. I know when I, I read my, my vision series from last year, we were just kind of saying, okay, God, we're open-handed right now, because sometimes it just takes a little bit of time to decide, you know, like try and hear and discern from the Holy Spirit what we're supposed to do. And now that I think we're less focused on our own healing, we've been able to sort of turn our faces outward. And as we've done that, we've seen some other people sort of returning um, our gaze as some natural partners. We suspected Ozone House would be a good place for us to focus some of our energy since the Ozone House helps with homeless youth in Washtenaw County. And 40% of homeless youth actually are LGBTQ, many of whom were kicked out of homes that have um, some more traditional religious postures. So we took some baby steps in their direction. I think that relationship is building. Um, we had a group of some of you guys came with us to their Valentine's Day fundraiser last February because the first thing that they told us that we could do was just start showing up. They said, show up, show up to our fundraiser, start to get to know us, meet our board, start to build some trust in the relationship. So we've been doing that. We sent a group to do some yard work and some kitchen cleaning there last May. Rachel and I attended their kind of big fancy fundraiser in September. Um, then they asked for the two of us to sit on a planning committee for an event at the Ark. It's, um, it's called As We Go On. I'm going to put in a plug for it here. So none of our people are telling stories there this year. What this is, it's kind of like a moth story hour. If you guys know the moth story hour where people tell their stories. And what they said was, they said, you know, gosh, there's that It Gets Better campaign. So I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but for a bunch of um, LGBTQ people, there's an online campaign called It Gets Better, and they film a bunch of people just encouraging young gay youth, like, don't worry, once you come out, it will get better. And so they said, okay, but the question we have is, how did it get better for you? And so this is a moth story hour with people who are queer from in our, from like actually within Washtenaw County who are talking about how it got better for them. And I put a little bug in their ear and I said, you know, gosh, so many, um, so many people have trouble because they come from more conservative religious backgrounds. Have you guys thought about like anybody with maybe a little bit of a spiritual bent for maybe next year? And so I think they were open to that. It would be nice to see somebody from our congregation be able to tell their story. So that's good. I feel like um, we're now being like, contacted by Ozone for help, and that's good. And then there's our work with Jewish Family Services. And I don't want to speak too much into this because we've been talking about it a lot over the last few months. But with partnership with St. Clair's Episcopal and Temple Beth Emmett, who we share the, the, con or the church building with, um, we've been coming together to help them resettle Jew or mostly Muslim refugees here in Washtenaw County. And so many of you guys know we collected goods. We actually collected enough goods to furnish four entire apartments for incoming refugees and I think $6,000 of gift cards that they can use at places like Target and Meijer. And when I counted, we, they had a little training session there a couple of weeks ago. I think 23 of the 50 people at the training session were from Blue Ocean. And so these are people who are going to help with things like buying groceries to stock the apartments before the refugees arrive. People who are going to help teach English and help them get certified in their vocational field so that way they can work in the U.S. But what was interesting to me was the woman who was doing the training for Jewish Family Services. Her name is Anya. She actually attends Temple Beth Emmett. 
And I was really struck by something she said in the training that I thought was worth passing on to you guys. She said that Jewish Family Services was actually set up a few decades ago, and it was to help the Jewish people resettle from the former Soviet Union. And she said, you know, look, we've seen waves of immigrants come over the last decade. She's like, we've seen people from the former Soviet republics, we've seen people from Yugoslavia and Kosovo and Somalia. And she said, I, I thought we were prepared to handle any kind of trauma that came our way. She said, but this is a new day. She said, the kind of trauma that we are seeing come from people in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan is like nothing we've ever seen before. And she said that 50% of the refugees are children and she told us that the high schoolers are the ones having the most trouble with being bullied here. So these are high schoolers that are coming over from places where they've had friends and sometimes even family members killed by terrorists entering into our high school system and being called terrorists. If you can imagine just the trauma that that causes them. So Caroline did something I thought was really super sweet and she had members of our youth group write welcome letters for the refugee kids and so that way they can open up something that says welcome, we're glad you're here. Here's some cool things in Ann Arbor. Here's who I am. And we're trying to work now with Jewish Family Services to form teams in the local middle and high school so that our kids can act as friends and advocates for those refugees if they attend some of the same schools. So we've got Ozone House and we've got JFS. And then as a church, we gave three $1,500 scholarships to single parents this year to help them further their education. And so these seem to be the places that have sort of sparked, um, sparked something in our hearts, as well as places that it feels like the Holy Spirit is kind of breathing on for us to do. And I think a temptation for churches is to get spread a little too thin and say yes to everything that comes along. But it seems like these are the places where if we focus our energies, we're really going to get a lot out of it and I think will be of real help and service to the people um, that we're partnering with. So the finances um, of the church are sound. I think it's good for people to hear that. But because of our size, we're a little bit smaller, we can be affected more when large givers move away. And so I think a couple of months ago, I was just indicating that we had three large givers who moved for job purposes over the last year. And so that's why it's helpful for us if you guys fill out that pledge form when you become a member, um, because that helps us be able to plan a little bit better. So Rachel and I actually did ours last week so that I wouldn't forget. And pastors tithe too. I used to wonder when I was little, um, pastors do tithe, Ken and I tithe. And I know one of the biggest things that we did here as a staff was to try and move like the financial oversight of the church off of my plate and um, back under the board, which is where it should largely, largely lie for the health of the church. And so I should say Robin Charles, who's walking there along the back, has been, she became our board treasurer and she has done like above and beyond work. Like, I can't even tell you guys how much work she's put into it. Yeah. She's shy, but give her a hand because she's been amazing. Um, so last but certainly not least, like this is just a little snapshot. Another place Ken and I poured a lot of our energy is into pastoral care. Um, as you know that we lost four key members to cancer this last year. And so there's been a lot of people grieving, both on our staff, us personally, as well as many of you here in the congregation. A lot of weddings, a lot of funerals, a lot of hearing people's stories. So even though we tried not to grow, we have had a steady um, trickle of newcomers coming in. And I'll say praise God to all of that. And so many of you guys we've sat down with and we've heard your stories and many of those are stories of exclusion and 
just a lot of pain sometimes within your family system, friends, or from another church. And I just want to say, like, it is such an honor to be a church where people who have been hurt and excluded can come and feel like they have a place to belong and to heal. Amen. Yeah. So this doesn't cover everything, but that's a little bit of a snapshot of where we've spent our energies this last year. It's been getting systems in place and trying to care for people. So in terms of the vision of the church, I felt like I had a little bit of a prophetic moment a couple of weeks ago. And I was on Facebook and I was there to, mostly I wanted to advertise the upcoming Blue Ocean Faith National Summit and invite people to come. But it happened to be the day that the news broke about InterVarsity. So for those of you who don't know, InterVarsity is one of the largest college campus groups. It's an evangelical group. And the news broke that they were essentially involuntarily terminating anybody on their staff, not only who is gay, but who agrees um, that uh, being gay is not sin and that you're free to pursue a same-sex relationship. And it was interesting to me because I was reading a little bit more about InterVarsity and because they've been a good, they've been such a good organization in many ways. And I thought, gosh, they really practice a third way in regards to women in leadership. You know, so as an organization, they have made a decision that women can lead at all levels of the organization. Um, but you can hold a private belief that you're not sure about that, or maybe you disagree, but you have to agree that you're going to follow the policy of the organization and hold that loosely and trust that God is sort of the judge. Um, and you relinquish your right to exclude women from leadership. And I thought, gosh, if they could just do that with LGBT stuff, it would just make such a difference. But like so many other organizations, they've like put the gauntlet down and done sort of a purge of all of their people. And I just, I don't know, like in the pain of that moment, this is what I wrote. I said, I'm convinced more than ever that trying to reclaim evangelicalism is a losing proposition. Because many of us came from that background and there are many people who are trying to reclaim it. But I just said, this is why I and my Blue Ocean colleagues across the nation decided last year to move outside the camp and be whatever's next. I'm not interested in constantly trying to define myself by what I'm against within evangelicalism. Like, I'm not interested in saying, I'm an evangelical, but not that kind. Like, that even seems disrespectful. I'm an evangelical, but one that thinks that women should lead. I'm an evangelical, but one that believes that climate change is real. You know, I'm not interested in engaging in conversations that demean my humanity, where I try and justify my leadership or my place at the table as a woman, much less as a gay woman. Amen. I just said, I'm ready for what comes after. Yes. And if you are too, come to the Blue Ocean Faith National Summit in Iowa City. We're not going to have any conversations about whether women should lead. It's a done deal. More than half of our senior pastors are women. We're not going to have any more conversations trying to convince people that climate change is a moral concern and that science is legitimate. We're not going to have any more conversations about the full acceptance of LGBTQ plus people in our communities. We can have differing opinions on those things, but we agree not to exclude people from the full life of the church. We're done with that. We're ready to talk about what we're for, who we are. Yeah, like, let's make a positive conversation. We're soulless Jesus. We're centered set. We're third way. We're ecumenical. We're joyfully engaged with the culture. We believe childlike faith is the path to spiritual development and maturity. We proudly say black lives matter. We fully embrace a personal experience of Jesus and the Holy Spirit as real as the heart of spirituality. We love the Bible. We will eagerly pursue it and read it for all the wisdom that it offers. But let's turn our gaze forward. Amen. Yeah, that's where our conversation is. So you guys may or may not realize, depending on your background, or you've come from, but there's a significant shift that is happening in the global church right now. 
So the late Phyllis Tickle, she said that these shifts seem to come every 500 years or so, and it seems that we are living in the midst of one of those. And so the question that's being asked, and not for the first time in the church, oh gosh, I felt like I had a Trump thing, I did that. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the question being asked, <laughs> where does the ultimate authority lie? And for the last 500 years, for most of the global church, that answer has been the Bible. That scripture is the ultimate authority for Christians. But after 500 years, we've seen the fruit of that answer. So the Reformation, 500 years ago, and its emphasis on scriptural authority, at the time was a really positive step. It was a step away from the exploitation and the corruption of the religious authorities of the day. And it took the authority of the church out of the hands of one human, namely the Pope, who was no Pope Francis, who I actually really kind of like. And actually, at the time, there wasn't just one Pope. There were three men, all claiming to be Pope, and it took a council to settle the dispute. All three of them had a legitimate uh, claim to the papacy. So this council of bishops, they met, and they convinced two of the three of them to step down. But the third one refused. But they didn't like him. So they decided to elect another Pope. And so the first Pope lived in France. The second Pope lived in Rome, and so people were starting to wonder, okay, well, where does the authority lie? If it's with the Pope, which Pope? Is it actually with the Council of Bishops, who seem to be making all these big decisions because the Popes aren't able to? And so there was all of this infighting between the Popes and the Bishops over who was actually in charge and over power and etc. So 500 years ago, the Reformers started preaching that Jesus was the head of the church and that the way to find out about Jesus was through Scripture. And so they said, Scripture is the authority of the church. But the problem is, is if you take the top 17 issues within Protestantism, right? So the top 17 major issues, so it would be things like, should you baptize infants or baptize people as adults? Which frankly, I don't care. I think both are legitimate. Should women be leaders or not? I have a strong opinion on that. <laughs> but the breadth of Christianity has varying opinions on that. You know, different ways of looking at the cross. So if you take the top 17 issues in Protestantism and you list all the various answers that fall within Christian orthodoxy, which are recognized as Christian and can be backed up with scripture, there are more than 5 million potential combinations of orthodox belief. And so the result of sola scriptura, scripture alone, over the last 500 years has been 5 million combinations of beliefs and 30,000 church denominations as church after church parted ways over this or that or the other, holding to the idea that their interpretation of the Bible was more authoritative than anybody else's because the Bible is quote-unquote clear. And our church right here is the result of such a fallout over one particular issue. So there's a larger question that's being asked right now about whether or not we're reading the Bible in a way that it's actually not meant to be read, and that maybe we've placed the Bible on a pedestal it was never meant to occupy. And so our piece in this larger conversation is in postulating that the Bible, while it's a source of revelation of God revealing himself to humanity, it's filled with wisdom, it is inspired, it is not the ultimate authority. Like the reformers 500 years ago, we agree that Jesus is the ultimate authority. It's just that he can be found in more than just the Bible. That he's alive, his spirit has been unleashed into the world, it's accessible to all, and that we can know this God who is loved by his spirit. So as with that big reformation that happened 500 years ago, there are several pockets of new reformation that are going on right now within the larger church. Like just within the United States, we see reform happening on multiple levels. First, we see it happening in the mainline churches. 
And these would be like the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Church of Christ. They're discussing how they interpret scripture and how they can make faith and the expression of their faith more accessible and relevant for people's lives today. They're talking about how to throw off the shackles of white supremacy and its pervasive effects in their church structure and their societal privilege. Those of you guys who attended the Y Christian Conference with us back in September, you got a glimpse of this part of the New Reformation that's happening as the voices of the oppressed within the mainline churches were being heard. We see reform happening in marginalized faith communities. So in preparation for writing the book, Ken and I are writing, I've actually been getting really into some, um, some Native American theology, which has been super insightful. There's a lot of reform happening there with African Americans, Latin Americans, Asian Americans, who are all talking about how to decolonize Christianity so that they can rediscover Jesus without all of the Jesus conquest language that's been so painful to them and also so detrimental to much of their culture. We also see reform happening in the evangelical sector. There's now a significant group of evangelicals who are calling themselves progressive evangelicals, and they have an emphasis on social justice and on inclusion. And I would say we have a lot in common with them. Like a lot of those pastors who are in sort of that circle, I call my friends, we have conversations with them. But there's a little bit of a difference between us and that I think who we're talking to is largely different than who they're in conversation with. So I see Blue Ocean Faith as a national network as yet another little pocket of reform. And I think we're a bit of a unique bunch because we're actually pioneering a role that hasn't really been pressed into. So the mainliners are having internal conversations among themselves, trying to get their houses in order. And the progressive evangelicals, I think, are doing something similar. They're still largely in conversation with traditional evangelicals. And that's greatly needed, right? They're pastoring people who are disaffected with the increasingly fundamentalist lean of that tradition. They're trying to give them tools to be able to walk out of that and maintain their faith. And then there's us. As a group of Blue Ocean pastors, we decided that our primary concern wasn't to be in conversation with evangelicals. Like, that's a great role, but that's not our role. We've moved past those hot-button issues that nobody outside of the church cares about, frankly, most of them anyway. And we decided our primary concern is to articulate who we are and what we're for to a secularizing culture, trusting that the attractiveness of Jesus and his way will open new experiences of faith for all people. And when Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all those reformers of 500 years ago, these are the major Reformation leaders, when they wanted to articulate the reforms, what they did was they just said what they were for. And I got this from Kim. This was helpful as we're writing the book. He's like, really, what they did was they just, they didn't spend a ton of time critiquing. They did some. But mostly they said, look, this is who we are. We believe scripture should be the highest authority. Sola Scriptura. And they held up their other banners. They said, by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, glory to God alone. And we would say we don't negate all that the reformers said there. There is a lot of good. But we're going to hold out our theological banner, and we are going to postulate that the authority of the church lies with Jesus. And if Jesus is alive and he's still speaking to the church today, then we can trust his spirit, the spirit of the God who is love, to lead us. And that that's going to take even more faith than we ever thought that we would need because we can't master Jesus in the way that we fooled ourselves into thinking we can master scripture. Yes. And that's what I'm going to say again. You cannot master Jesus or his spirit in the way that we fool ourselves into thinking that we can master the Bible. And Jesus may even say different things to different people. You know, like if you're somebody who's in recovery, you might need different rules for your life than somebody who's not. Like Jesus knows what is best for us. He might say different things to different people. His spirit might manifest in ways that make us uncomfortable. The Gospel of John tells us there are sheep that are not of this sheep pen. 
right? There are people following a path of love who probably don't label it in the same way that we do. And so we have to be humble. We can't put God in a box. His spirit is untamable, as C.S. Lewis might say. You know, the fastest growing religion in the world is Pentecostalism. So whether we believe it or not, there are a lot of people out there who are saying that they're experiencing this spirit of love and testifying that it's changing their lives. And some of these people are literate in different kinds of ways than we're literate. Right? You might have people who are largely from oral cultures for whom oral tradition is their literacy. And maybe they don't read and write. And so to me this is interesting because sola scriptura really privileged the educated which were mostly, at least up until the last century, they were men who were wealthier, and many of them from the West. The Holy Spirit is more accessible than the Bible. And we fully believe the Spirit's manifestation in so many people is a move of God in the world right now. And so as I said, Ken and I have started writing a book. We're actually taking this week as a writing week called Soulless Jesus. And it'll be released next year, and maybe this is a little bit gutsy, but next year will be the 500th anniversary from when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. So this is our Solus Jesus banner, and it's not like a piece of cement that we're laying and we're saying this is definitely right for all time. It's like our stake in the ground, right? It's our thoughts that we are throwing out to be in conversation with other people who can help shape it and flesh it out and see what it is. And part of Solus Jesus, being a church that is Solus Jesus, means that we're less concerned about the boundary markers of who's in and who's out of the faith community. We feel like that's not our job to determine. That job belongs to Jesus alone. He's made it pretty clear he doesn't trust us with that job. We've done a lot of sermons on that topic. But a Solus Jesus framework necessitates a different kind of faith community. It's one that's inclusive. And within that inclusive community, there can be a variety of opinions on theology. And so I hope you guys can hear me say that, because I genuinely respect people who have differing opinions on things. Whether it's on open theism, I had some really fruitful conversations after I preached on open theism, whether it's on LGBTQ inclusion, um, people with different opinions, but who are able to relinquish their power to exclude and to leave the judgment to Jesus. Right? So with the LGBT stuff, like our church, it looks like an open and affirming church. Like that's what it is in practice. But what the third way does is it says, I am not going to ex exclude you. I'm not going to boot people out of leadership who disagree for reasons of conscience, so long as they're able to relinquish their judgment and leave that to God. So like I would even plant out a senior pastor of a blue ocean congregation who was more conservative on the issue privately or wasn't sure how they felt so long as they were committed to not excluding anyone from leadership if they saw their calling and their gifting seem to be indicating that. That's what third way means. I lost my place because I just started preaching. <laughs> it's all good. We close by saying this. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told that Jesus had compassion on the oppressed people. And he had compassion on them because he was looking out and he saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And we are called to be a safe place for sheep without a shepherd. And there are so many people who have walked away from faith because the Bible has been used as a weapon against them and not as a balm for their wounds. Amen. Right? The Bible has been used as a weapon and not a balm for their wounds. And there are so many people who long for a spiritual connection but who feel judged wherever they go. And there are so many people who have doubts about God and faith and community and doubt is part and parcel of any faith journey. But they need a place to go where they can say that out loud and not feel like they're going to be excluded.
people who need community, who need to feel like they belong, who need a place to bring their kids and have empathy taught, you know, something that can parallel what they're trying to teach their kids at home, a place that can provide some spiritual framework for the youth who are processing their own decisions. And so that's what we are to be as a church. And I think we are now at the point where we're in a position of being able to open our arms a little bit wider and, and offering more people to come in. Like Ken and I have never had ambitions of being a, like a big mega church. I think we said that from the get-go. Like if we ever, you know, Lord help, like if we ever got that big, we'd probably just plant another church. Um, but I don't think we're at that place right now. I do think we're at a place where we can handle more families who are coming in and it's our job to do the church and to be the church, right? We are a church that gives. We're a church that serves as we are able. And as we see new people who are coming along, we're going to need to like expand our space in our small groups and in our classes and in our lives so that we can help people heal and belong. And that's what we're to be. So if you're wanting to know what can I do to be part of this, well, funny you should ask. I think Ken already. <laughs> you see, you've got the Blue Ocean Faith letter. I think they're on the back welcome table. Fill it out. Like I said, there is a place for you to put your financial pledge. I would encourage you to do that because it helps us a lot. And I would also encourage you to give generously. You know, I've always been um, a tither, tried to be a generous giver. And we do that not because I'm like, oh, my salary depends on it. I feel like I give because it helps me. You know, that we live in a culture where we have most of our needs taken care of. And it's a way where I think that it's easy for us to get into a mindset where we feel like I can provide for myself. I know I have been there many, many a time. I once told God I wouldn't go out and be a missionary until I could fund myself. <laughs> um, it's this sort of a, attachment to money. And the way that you break an attachment to money is you start to give it away. You become generous. And the way to become a generous person is to start giving away. So I would encourage you to give generously. I would encourage you to serve where you can and are able, knowing that sometimes if you've got a new baby, there's different life things that keep you from doing that. And let's do this together, church. Let's start inviting more people in. Let's start some other Blue Ocean churches. And may God bless us in this task.